0: This is Christ the Center, episode number 145. Today we speak with John Fesco about his new book on baptism, Word, Water, and Spirit. This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 145, and my name is Camden Busey. We have an excellent discussion lined up today, and let me introduce to you our panel. We have with us Nick Batsig, who is a church planter with the PCA in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Welcome to the program, Nick.
1: Thanks, Camden. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun today. We also have with us our good friend Jim Cassidy, who is the pastor at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringoes, New Jersey. Welcome to the program, Jim.
2: It's good to be here, Camden. Thanks.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear your voice as well on this Monday afternoon. And we are very pleased to welcome back to the program John Fesco, who is the Vice President for Academic Affairs at Westminster Seminary, California, in Escondido. Welcome back to the program, John. It's great to have you.
3: Oh, Thanks so much and it's glad to, I'm glad to be back
0: well, This is going to be great We have a wonderful new book uh, by Dr. Fesco On the Reformed Doctrine of Baptism It is published by Reformation Heritage Books uh, It's a great volume entitled Word, Water, and Spirit And that is going to be our subject of discussion today But before we need to of course As we always do every week Pause for any news or announcements uh, Do we have anything we need to mention guys? I
2: would just like to mention uh, one more time the Princeton Conference on Reformed Theology coming up the first weekend in November. You can find out more about that at Alliancenet.org.
0: Yeah, and we have an episode of the Reformed Media Review available that deals with that conference in detail. Uh, Some representatives for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals came on the program, and Jim was able to ask them many questions and talk about the topics of that conference. So that's coming up soon. So uh, do not delay, and if you're in the Princeton area or if you're willing to make your way there, uh, we'd highly recommend that you check that out because those series of conferences are great, and this one's going to be a good one. Um, In terms of our website news, I would, of course, like to remind everyone about reformedforum.tv. There we broadcast many of our programs live. Uh, You can visit reformedforum.tv, and we publish a schedule Uh, that will help you to follow along and understand uh, what we've got coming up and when it's coming up and where you can listen. And, of course, I'd also like to mention our iPhone application. Uh, It's been a while since I mentioned it, but we have uh, several hundred, almost a thousand now, people using it. So I would encourage you, if you have an iPhone or an iPod Touch, uh, to visit the App Store and download our application for free. And you can get all of our apps or all of our episodes for free through the application, and there's all sorts of fun stuff in there. So check it out in the App Store, the Reformed Forum iPhone application. Hey, Camden. Yes, could we, yes. Could, could we get a Droid app soon? Yeah, it's in the works. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, you think you're funny, but we actually, <laughs> we actually <laughs> well, have no, one coming soon. I have I'd like a Droid app. So. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, uh, it, it's coming. Uh, my brother who wrote the iphone apps on on his uh, way uh co- toward completing our droid app so there's there'll be one out for the droid so all you verizon subscribers will be able to get our app free as well yeah. hey camden yes, i have sir. one more
2: announcement if i could please all right great uh just everyone look out for the upcoming issue of the confessional presbyterian oh, journal oh yeah uh you can check out the upcoming 2010 issue we we're We're a little late for 2010, but it's still the 2010 issue um, (laughs) at cpjournal.com. We're also happy to announce that uh, Dr. Fesco has a wonderful article in there on Bollinger and the Doctrine of Union with Christ. Uh, Since we are featuring Dr. Fesco today, I thought it would be appropriate to um, – push and, and uh, uh, advertise this journal uh, with his fine article in there. So check it out, cpjournal.com.
0: Yeah, that's a great website, uh, a great publication, and we're glad uh, for all your work, Jim, and everyone else who works on the CP Journal. Um, pick it up if you if you haven't already. That there are always great articles in there, especially uh, for those interested in Presbyterianism and uh, just confessional Reformed theology. It's great stuff, so check that out. And one final announcement, I would like to encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org donate. All of our programs here, including Christ the Center, are listener-supported. And if you're able to support us financially, we would very much appreciate if you visit the website and help us out to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We thank you so much for your support and your consideration of Reformed Forum and Christ the Center. All right, guys, with that uh, taken care of, let's get right into our subject. As I mentioned, we're talking today about the book Word, Water, and Spirit, A Reformed Perspective on Baptism by Dr. John Fesco. It is published by Reformation Heritage Books, and they do a very good job of publishing um, not only the content but even the quality of the books. This is a, a substantial volume that's printed well and bound well, and uh it's very it's very attractive, so I would encourage you uh, to check this book out. but as you will see as we discuss today, you're going to find that it's well worth the read, not only worth the look so uh Dr. Fesco, let me ask you a, a very basic question up front. Uh, it's an easy question to ask, but why another reformed book on baptism aren't there enough or do what is missing in the world of uh, baptism books that that this book is needed?
3: Well, my hope, I think, in writing it was that as I was doing uh, my own research, I found that uh, there were a number of terrific books out there on the subject of baptism, but I think I had to go to a number of different places uh, to get uh, answers to my questions. Uh, For example, John Murray has a wonderful little book on baptism, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's small, uh, and it addresses uh, important questions, but uh, perhaps not as exhaustively as one would hope. Uh, and then uh there are I think there are not as many books that really deal, at least from a reform perspective, on the history of the doctrine. Yeah. And you have to go to a number of different sources to um you know, to uh, to find that information out. But uh I think I don't know if I want to say most importantly or one of the biggest driving factors, I think you say like maybe one of the biggest driving factors for me is that I couldn't find any one place uh where I could find a biblical theology of baptism and uh I you know you could find scattered comments here and there in journals, essays uh books, and what have you, but uh no one single place where you could go to and so I thought, well, uh why don't I put this material together and uh if I put it together for myself, perhaps others will uh find it useful as well and so what I hope to contribute to it is that it's uh one place where you can go to for the history uh for the uh biblical theology and for the systematic. Uh, theology of um, the the doctrine. And then from there, go to these many other fine contributions that have been offered over the years uh, to dig in for more information.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I I asked that question knowing how you're going to answer it, and I would recommend to our listeners, this is a very valuable book and useful, and uh, I agree with everything you just said. Um, It's... Let's just uh, follow through with the uh, table of contents. You have the three sections, the history of the doctrine, the biblical theological survey of the doctrine, and then the systematic theological construction of the doctrine. I'd like to just uh, structure our conversation today around those main points. So let me ask you a methodological question up front, uh, dealing with the history of the doctrine. What do you think is the proper relationship between historical theology and systematic theology?
3: I think that it's uh first and foremost uh, s- subsidiary or it is secondary to uh our you know systematic theology but at the same time uh, perhaps the way that I can explain it is that it exists as a uh, as a discrete and careful dance uh between uh the two disciplines because The argument might be, well, we should start with our systematic theology. We should start with Scripture and build our doctrine from there, and then ask the question of what has uh, the the Church said, what have other great theologians have said on the subject. On the other hand, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to start with uh, historical theology is that uh, we're not the first ones to approach the subject, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like uh, walking into a, a, a debate, if you will. Uh, after three or four hours of debate have gone on and asking the participants, hey, uh, what's what's going on? And uh, then they have to rehearse everything uh, just to catch you up. And so I figured, let me catch the readers up on what has been going on in the history. And I wish it were just three to four um, hours worth, but it's been close to 2,000 years worth. And so I figured that that would be helpful just to put before the reader Uh, what are the debated issues, what are the answers that have been given to each respective issue, and uh, how has the Church discussed these subjects in the past? And then from there, to go to begin to build the doctrine to ask the question, okay, whose answer best uh, comports or best conforms to the answers that the Scriptures give?
0: That's wonderful. Um, Of course, as we uh, enter the discussion, there's always historical debate about the practice of infant baptism. Uh, Baptist, uh, Credo Baptists in particular have done a lot of work on this subject. Do you find that there's a, a lack, uh, particularly a, a just a lack of historical study um, by infant Baptists or Pado Baptists?
3: Uh, yeah, I think so. Maybe perhaps a little bit from both sides uh, in that um, I think the question has always, or typically, I should say, typically been approached from uh, were, baptized, were infants baptized or not, and that's been one of the driving questions in looking at the history of the doctrine. But as interested as I am in that question, and as all of us would be, as well as I would assume you know, Baptists as well, I wanted to cast a broader net uh, to paint uh, the bigger portrait, uh, because, for example... Uh, Tertullian is sometimes cited as somebody who uh, didn't want to practice uh, paedobaptism, baptism mm-hmm. and so he's cited as some, an early uh, Baptist or something to that effect. And I want to say, wait a minute, um, while Tertullian demurred from wanting to baptize infants, you don't see him uh, opposing it uh, uh, vociferously, and on the other hand, the fact that he acknowledges it, uh, that he doesn't want baptism or, uh, infants baptized, acknowledges implicitly that, it, that other people were baptizing infants. But then there's the unchecked question, I think, is that you can't just simply say he was against infant baptism, and therefore he's a forerunner for us, because he believes some very different things about uh, baptism in general that I think many Baptists would find uh, troubling. Uh, that the the water had miraculous powers, and so it's kind of like appealing to the Roman Catholic Church to say they believe in adult baptism, so do we. Therefore, we agree. Uh, that's uh, that may be formally true, but there's a lot of things in there that uh, they probably wouldn't agree with. And so, in casting that broader net and uh, asking a number of different questions of the history of the doctrine, hopefully, what I've been able to do is uh, is is to present that fuller picture. So that when we do get to the scriptures, uh, we can uh, begin to, uh, you know, dissect and answer these uh, sometimes uh, difficult questions. Uh, I think one of the issues I could point, for example, is that I was sort of surprised in the research that when I found out that it was really um, uh, particular Baptists in the 17th century with the 1689 L- Second London Confession, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell uh that really insisted uh, exclusively upon uh immersion as the exclusive means of baptism i've not been able to find any other confession uh to uh, expect that even the early anabaptists for example didn't uh insist upon immersion uh, i forget i think it was baltazar hoopmire was baptized with a milking cow's milk milking bucket <laughs> uh you know so at least it's not with the cow's to, milk to, yeah, exactly. Hopefully not. Uh, so it's interesting to find out those things uh, and uh, to to bring them to the table in this whole discussion.
1: I thought, Dr. Fesco, I thought the way that you opened the book was interesting because I expected you to kind of go throughout um, Archibald Alexander in his um, autobiography or his biography talks about wrestling with historicity of baptism and saying how could um, the majority, if not almost every one of the major early church theologians within a hundred years of the apostles um, be found baptizing infants, but you didn't do that. You looked at the theology of the, the early church church fathers and, um, and, and showed as you did that Tertullian, while he didn't baptize infants, had some messed up theology. I was wondering if, um, it's true in, in your studies that one of the reasons besides you make the point that Tertullian believed that, um, that children had an innocence to them, that didn't he also believe that if someone um, sinned post-baptismal sins, that could um, could jeopardize their eternity? Didn't that play into why he didn't want to baptize children and women? Is that true? I've heard that. I haven't read that.
3: I think I can confirm that regarding the children I think the but I can't necessarily say the same for women. I didn't run into that, but that's not to say that it's not out there you, I think you may be correct um with particular to the children I think he he basically didn't want them to assume the uh the responsibilities of being a Christian uh before they understood what it was that they were doing, and so I think that in that regard he didn't want them jeopardizing uh their salvation, which again um Maybe that uh, rings true for some uh, in the broader evangelical church, maybe even some types of Baptists, general Baptists historically, those who believed uh, in—that followed more in line with Jacob Arminius. Uh, But uh, that would not ring well for um, particular Baptists or what we call Reformed Baptists today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I I think you're right. That's why it's important, I think, to to kind of paint as— Full a picture as possible, uh, so that we can kind of we can th- take all of those uh, facts into consideration when we're we're looking at the history of the doctrine, especially as it relates to uh, paedo baptism or infant baptism.
0: Now we've right. we've asked the question about uh, different practices of baptism in terms of who it is administered to. Has the uh, the the doctrine or the thought about the mode of baptism developed over time as well?
3: You know, yeah, I think it has, but perhaps in a way that might surprise uh, some folks, especially in our circles, in that um, I know it's uh, Robert Raymond and his systematic theology that makes the case for um, for sprinkling uh, exclusively. And uh, I found it interesting that when you look at the uh, sources, whether you look at Aquinas uh, in the Middle Ages, or you're looking at Luther or Calvin or even Turretin, um they all say, uh, you know, to a man that uh, their mode of baptism, in that it's funny that you get um, Aquinas saying, well, if you're immersed once, that refers to the unity of the tr- Trinity. Hmm. If you're immersed three times, that refers to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the Trinity. And he just throws this out there as if it should be a self-evident fact. Um, and on the other hand, you find really uh, strange statements, in my opinion. That kind of stumbled across them in Turretin, and it really made me scratch my head and then laugh really hard because he says, uh, "Well, we uh, want to make sure that uh, you know when regarding mode, it's it's, uh, it's 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 an issue that should be devi- or decided up to the churches, but that we prefer sprinkling because." Of uh, modesty, we don't want people to be naked in church, or something to that. <laughs> and I thought I'm scratching my head, thinking, why would they be naked in church? And then you do a little digging around, and you find out that the early church uh, often baptized people naked, uh, and uh, they did so in you know not co- in coed situations, but uh, they separated the men and the women. But that was an interesting fact to stumble upon. But an even other, I think, interesting fact to stumble upon as well is that uh, Lutherans and even the uh, earlier Reformed churches, they would immerse their infants uh, in baptism. And uh, one of the reasons cited for sprinkling the infants rather than immersing them was because in a cold church in the dead of winter in northern Europe, uh, in cold water, you could threaten the life of a child by completely immersing him or her in water. Uh, and in fact, I think it was uh, Boris Yeltsin who tells a story that he was almost drowned by a Russian priest, a drunk Russian priest, because he immersed him and left him under too long. Oh, and so, uh, wow. you know, you find this out that uh, reform folks were amenable to all three forms of, of baptism, and it's only really i think it's only been in recent years uh that uh that some reformed folks have in, insisted upon one mode uh but uh, i think that the westminster confession albeit expressing a, a preference for sprinkling um nevertheless says that all uh f- those three forms are acceptable but it, right. um you know and so that if a, a baptist comes to our church is to join it uh One of our churches we won't say, oh, "Well, you need to be sprinkled they We accept that baptism, but the opposite is not true is that if you go to a Baptist church and you've only been sprinkled even as a professing adult, well, they'll say, "Well, we need to readminister it and uh that i again, as best as I can tell, it's recorded for the first time in the second London confession, so those are interesting things I think that would be important for people in the church, especially in our circles, to hear.
1: I've always found it interesting that a lot of Baptist friends I've had tried to make a point that that immersion would exclude infant baptism as if the argument over mode would somehow solidify a position. Uh, And I think there are still certain reformed churches up till maybe 20 years ago in Scotland that would dunk baby. I mean, you give a baby a bath a couple minutes after they're born, so that, you know, Just saying that that argument itself is not as important as so many people make it.
3: Right. Yeah, I think that, again, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do uh, the history, just to kind of dig up as much information as I could about baptism in general. But hopefully, helpful information like you mentioned that would be, um, you know, uh, important and helpful to the the overall discussion between Pado baptists and Baptists.
0: What were some of the historical driving factors in various uh, developments of the doctrine of baptism through time? You you not only treat the early church, but you treat the, the whole scope of church history. Uh, for instance, let me ask, how did pietism influence the doctrine and practice of baptism?
3: Um, you know, I think in terms of pietism, uh, I don't know, that's a really good question, and I think that the answer that comes to mind— is that uh, you know people looked at baptism uh, as if it were important, but particularly I think it tends more towards the believer's pledge, uh, you know, to to God rather than uh, to God's pledge. In other words, you find this not only among Pietists, um, but uh, also uh, among those who would maybe uh, owe their uh, background to Zwingli's influence, for example that it's my pledge, it's what I say, and I wanted to ask the question, well, uh, what is God saying in this? But also, too, you find it, for example, in the, in the theology of Frederick Schleiermacher, mm. who is a very influential upon pietism, something almost uh, of an indifference uh, towards baptism, uh, in the sense, at least ecumenically, saying that, well, if you want to have your children baptized, that's okay, so long as you don't condemn um uh, those who don't, and those who uh, only, you know, you Baptists so long as you don't condemn, condemn the infant baptists so I think we can get along. That was something of a surprise to me. Uh, but in particular, again, locating uh, the efficacy of baptism uh, with the person's personal decision. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if this is a slight exaggeration, but I don't think it's very far from the truth that um, God is all but eliminated uh, in baptism. And you right. basically you have that in Karl Barth. Um, Karl Barth, it's been recently argued by um, by a, a recent grad of Oxford, a guy by the name of Ryan Glowshood, that at heart Karl Barth was a Anabaptist, and he basically said that baptism is entirely a human action, uh, and that it is in no way an act of God in any sense. Mm. So have God completely taken out of the, the baptism? Uh, and um, so, yeah, that's an important question, I think, to look at and to understand. And who knows, maybe some folks out in the church would recognize, wait a minute, I, maybe I've been influenced unknowingly, unconsciously through the development of this doctrine by the likes of Bart and Schleiermacher, and I don't realize it, and maybe I should sit up and take a look around and see what's going on.
2: Uh, Dr. Fesco, uh, just a question um, about the situation here in America, and I'm thinking particularly in light of a study that was done, I believe it was by E.Y. Mullins down at Southern Seminary uh, that caused a lot of controversy among Southern Baptists, uh, where he argued that the idea of exclusive immersion uh, was a later practice among the Baptists, that the early Anabaptists actually were indifferent towards mode. Um, is Is that... something that you were able to confirm in your studies, and, and if so, how might that speak to the uh, issue today among, uh, particularly looking at some of our Reformed Baptist brethren who uh, do argue exclusive immersion?
3: Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that is a claim that I think you do find in in, in later Baptist literature. Uh, but as you said, and as I alluded to earlier, the early Anabaptists didn't. The The, the problem with this question is that, um, you know, the Anabaptists were not a cohesive movement in the same way that, say, the Lutherans or the Reformed churches were, uh, in that uh, the Lutherans and the Reformed both wrote confessions. Uh, These were uh, documents that uh, were their corporate expressions of faith by which they bound themselves together, Whereas you find Anabaptist confessions, but they were perhaps for much smaller groups, a few churches here or there, or an individual here or there, and so there's no cohesive message that you get from the Anabaptists. Uh, Some of them could be somewhat mild, some of them could be very radical or very extremist in their views. so I think that that's an important thing to recognize, that there's not a monolithic Anabaptist position, as it's sometimes uh, intimated. But especially as it relates here to our American context, uh, you know, with the, I guess, with the insistence upon uh, the exclusivity of immersion. Yeah, I think that not only the history, does that, uh, is that an important question, or that's an important fact to uncover, that there was no uh, insistence upon mode, even among the reformers. But I think that when we get over into the biblical theology or the systematic theology of it, that I think that there's uh, legitimate arguments. To, there are legitimate arguments to be made that all three modes are biblical. And uh, while a church may prefer one mode over the other, perhaps because of practicality, it's easier to sprinkle someone than it is to get a, somebody entirely immersed. Mm. At the same time, um, you know, we should look at baptisms and be... Ecumenical and ecumenically minded in a responsible biblical way, more so if we recognize hey, wait a minute, all three modes are biblical and the biblical witness is clear about it, but maybe we can talk a little bit more about Mode when we get to the biblical theology yeah. of upsection, perhaps.
0: We might as well get there now. I, one thing I very okay. much appreciate about uh, the book is that you do spend much time in the biblical theology and dealing with the texts. Uh, so many people through history have had either a rationalist approach to the doctrine, you, you mentioned Jürgen Moltmann and and, Wolf R. Pannenberg and and some others who, who will tend to formulate their doctrine of baptism according to their, their system's dogma. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what we need to avoid is, is that kind of practice, and we always need to base our systematic theology based on exegesis. And so uh, speaking of uh, exegetical work and also the biblical theology that we must do as we approach God's Word, um, let's ask this question. Uh, does our understanding of baptism... Directly hinge upon our understanding of the word baptizo.
3: It, it shouldn't, as odd as that sounds. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, because I think the um, you know the, the uh, common Baptist argument is to say, um, "Well, here's baptizo. Baptizo means, according to this lexicon, to immerse." Therefore, we should immerse ourselves, and when um Christ is baptized, he was immersed as well and um I want to say, well, okay, if you're going to define it that way, then I want to say that baptizo should not define our doctrine of baptism because not because of I disagree with using the word but because I disagree with the methodology that lies beneath it, Mm. in that I think a lot of folks don't realize, I know you guys do, but a lot of folks don't realize that baptizo is carried straight over into English as the word baptism, and there's no effort to translate it. It's just transliterated, which means that over the years, uh, translators have punted on it, and they don't know how to uh, translate it, perhaps, or perhaps it could be that because it's a word with so many varied meanings depending upon the context, it's safest simply just to translate it or to transliterate it. So, for example, um, if uh, if John the Baptist says of Christ that he was to baptize in spirit and fire, and that baptism is contrasted with John's water baptism, Mm -hmm. well, they're going to be very different baptisms, especially... If uh, John is referring to Joel 3, I'm sorry, Joel 2, uh, 2, 2.28 and following, Mm -hmm. and the The prophecy of the outpouring of the Spirit, Mm -hmm. and if that's the baptism of the Church, uh, you know, when you put those two texts together, then, for example, with mode, that would tell me at least that outpouring, because the Spirit is poured out upon the Church, the Church is baptized in the Spirit, that that's a legitimate mode, and that it echoes that biblical imagery. Uh, So... If I think the preferred method is not to go to a, a lexicon and just appeal to the net lexicon by itself, but rather to appeal to how the Bible itself defines and uses these terms. And sometimes, yes, the lexicon is going to be helpful and necessary to understand that, but we don't want to appeal to a, the, the the word abstractly defined, but rather as it's defined and used in the Scriptures.
0: Yeah, it's so. helpful.
2: So, um, uh, Dr. Fesco, as you open up your chapter on the Biblical Theology section, you talk about uh, Genesis 1-2. Why begin with Genesis 1-2? Yeah,
3: um, it's really important, I think, to begin there, because I think for some, methodologically, they ask the question, they start in the New Testament, and they say, okay, um, where does baptism come from? And they look around historically, and they say, "Well, the Qumran community, this sect of, of uh, breakaway uh, sect of, of Jewish uh, uh, people, lived near the Dead Sea, uh, uh, and they, you know, they had these types of uh, washings. And maybe John the Baptist was exposed to those folks, and uh, he got the idea for baptism from them. Uh, or maybe John the Baptist was uh, looking around and saw how." The first century Jews were uh, washing uh, and immersing uh, Gentile converts, and maybe that's where he got the idea uh, for baptism. And I don't know, it seems like the Sunday school answer, but I want to say, well, maybe John the Baptist got the idea from the Old Testament, (laughs) and uh, maybe he just looked there. Uh, and of course, under the inspira- by the inspiration of uh, the Holy Spirit, right. and that really is the direction where uh, the New Testament points. Is that Peter in First Peter chapter three, he says that the flood is a um, a type of baptism, and the flood returned the uh, creation to the Genesis one one state when the waters covered the earth. And uh, while we might disagree with some of the particulars of his exegesis and some of his theological conclusions, Tertullian, all the way back in the uh, third century, uh, identified that he says this is the first place where we see baptism is in Genesis uh, one one and following. And so, uh, when you really tie all of those pieces together, First Peter chapter three, and uh, then the flood in Genesis seven, Genesis one, uh, it really drives us back to uh, to Genesis one and. I think in particular, uh, you know, whenever you see water and spirit mentioned together in the scriptures, that I think is typically expressive of new creation, and I think that that's ultimately what lies behind, for example, Jesus' statement to Nicodemus that you must be born of water and spirit. Um, He's not referring to the amniotic fluid, he's not referring to um, uh, uh, water per se, but rather to the new creation activity of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. that is... Visibly preached in baptism.
0: Now you mentioned John the Baptist several times, and uh, okay. you, we've we've talked about the whole scope of redemptive history. Toward the end of the Old Testament era, we end up with a prophecy in Malachi chapter three, and then it carries over into four about uh, the one who will come and prepare. The way uh, that that the quote from Malachi is combined with a with a quotation from Isaiah uh, in the New Testament, and we know and understand that John the Baptist is that one, that voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord with a baptism of repentance. I, I'm. This has been a, a subject of of meditation for me for for several years. Though, how careful or cautious should we be in trying to formulate an entire doctrine of? Of New Testament baptism based on John, if John was the the last right. figure, uh, the last prophetic figure of the Old Testament, who ushers, who closes off an era, how cautious, right. if at all, should we be uh, when we look at his baptism, trying to make it normative?
3: Now, I think very cautious uh, because again, this is where we can begin to uh, look at a passage or a portion of Scripture in isolation from the rest, in that John is appealed to because uh, of some of the language in the gospel narratives that, sh- that appear to give the impression that Jesus is uh, immersed, and therefore John the Baptist becomes the paradigm. Uh, but as you said, um, uh, you know, the thing that we have to take note of here, for example, is that Uh, John the Baptist was the terminal uh, Old Testament prophet, so uh, there's a sense in which he is not in the New Testament. He passes the baton off, if you will, to Christ as, as the forerunner. Now we can say that because he lives during the time of Christ, that yes, he lives in the New Testament period, but he's in a very unique relationship unlike that of any other person really. Uh, in uh, all of Scripture. He he rides the fence, so to speak, or sits on the border between the Old Testament and the New Testament, with a, fir- a foot firmly planted on either side. Secondly, I think one of the most um, uh, notable facts that we should take attention or take bring our attention to is that uh, Christ inaugurates baptism with uh, the ending of the Matthew, uh, the ending of Go- Matthew's Gospel with uh, Matthew 28, mm-hmm. uh, 18 and 19 with the Great Commission, and particularly with the mention of the triune name, and that is being the baptismal formula. Whereas John does not baptize in uh, the name of the Trinity. Now, what's a really curious fact of history is that Calvin says that John the Baptist did baptize in the name of the Trinity. And I think that would be really odd. <laughs> I could mm-hmm. be wrong about that, but that would be really odd. But more importantly, the text mentions nothing about that.
0: The Trinity is so, certainly present, but it's not sure. in the formula of the baptism at all.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And so that should be a huge clue to us, I think, that uh, John's baptism is, is different uh, from the baptism that Christ inaugurates. Uh, so, uh, you know, to, to construct a doctrine of baptism almost exclusively from John the Baptist's activities, uh, yeah, is is, is problematic. And again, I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say, we've got to go back to the Old Testament further and look back to Malachi, look back to Joel, uh, look back to Isaiah... And to even to the Pentateuch and to Genesis so that we have a backdrop to John's activity mm-hmm. and then understand what it is that he's passing off uh, to Christ and how it is, is that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. So, yes, I, I, I totally agree. Mm.
1: Dr. Fesco, I wanted to backtrack it- um, in that regard, back to the typological nature of the flood and the Red Sea in particular, with First Peter three and First Corinthians ten, and you nicely tie together in your book, um, which I really appreciated, the new creation element, the typological creation, Genesis one two, the waters of the flood go down, Noah essentially steps out on the t- typical new creation as the head of humanity, and then um, Israelites going through the the sea. I think from Poitras was. A, First person, I learned that from where they're going in and coming out as a new creation. Um, mm-hmm. But how far can we take the typological element in our understanding of the covenantal nature of New Covenant uh, baptism? For instance, we look at um, the flood and Noah and his household is mm-hmm. typically redeemed through the, you know, uh, the type of baptism. Um, And all of Israel, including the children, go through the Red Sea, and Paul tells us they were all baptized into Moses, and that has an implication for you, New Covenant Church. So I think this is a major point for me. I find strong arguments there for a covenantal household baptism argument. Mm -hmm. My Reformed Baptist brothers would say there's more anti-type fulfillment that would exclude the children. What do you think? Is that pressing it too far, or is that legitimate?
3: No, that's a, that's an important question that you ask, and I think that—bottom uh, line, I think it's legitimate, but uh, obviously it requires some uh, filling in of some details in that uh, here's where I think the details lie. And, you know, first and foremost, I think our particular Baptist or Reformed Baptist brethren, uh, they want to balance the weight uh, on the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament or the Old Covenant to the New Covenant on discontinuity. And uh, we reform folks, uh, Presbyterians, we want to uh, put the balance upon uh, continuity, and right. uh, and here's the way I think that we can responsibly put the emphasis upon continuity without falling into any of the problems of, say, for example, uh, paedo-communion or, or something to that effect, is that um, there's a distinction in that I think too many people think that baptism and say the Lord's Supper, because they're both sacraments, they function exactly alike and uh the bottom line is that they don't and if i memory serves me correctly right. i think john murray draws some uh points of uh, points this out i think somewhere It may be in his baptism book but i know that uh, calvin is, in his institutes also addresses this but uh in much with a greater degree of specificity i think we can say that baptism is covenant inauguration and uh and god in that uh, relationship deals with uh covenantal units households uh, and so this is why I think we see the redemption, for example, as you've pointed out, of all of Israel, uh, or of uh, Moses. I'm sorry, not Moses. Noah's entire household.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but when we get to uh, covenant ratification, uh, I think that's where uh, we begin to see uh, the judgment of individuals, and in particular, you see, um, you know, some of Noah's sons, uh, Ham and his sons, uh, judged. Right. Uh, because of their uh, ungodly activity and that with the repetition of the cursing of seed I think that that is uh, uh, evidence that the seed of the serpent is still alive just as uh, Genesis 3 closes with the cursing and blessing of seed so you see there in uh, in, uh, at the end of the flood in Genesis uh, 8 and 9 that you see the blessing and cursing of seed to remind us that the seed of the serpent is still present and then same thing here with the uh, Exodus, that all of Israel is baptized, including their infants, which is a point, I think, that we Reform folks need to emphasize more. Infant baptism is present in the New Testament. It's right there in 1 Corinthians 10.
1: Right, right.
3: What people don't make the connection is they don't see in Exodus 24, the covenant ratification, uh, where the elders of Israel alone, uh, and Moses and Aaron and the priests, ascend to Mount Sinai, And um, they eat in the presence of God unharmed. And in particular, what I think is so crucial to making this connection is that there are only two places in the Scriptures where you find the terms blood and covenant, or blood of the covenant mentioned, and that's in the uh, Lord's Supper narratives in the Gospels. And then it's also in that Exodus 24 narrative where Moses sprinkles mm. the blood of the covenant upon the people, and they personally, as well as corporately, but personally ratify the covenant saying that I will do this, and if, uh, if I don't, then may its curses fall upon me. And I think we see that, especially in the Lord's Supper, and here's the, an important distinction that I'm going to throw out, is the Passover. The significance of the Lord's Supper, or is it the occasion? And I would say I think it's the occasion of the Lord's Supper, not that it's an exact correspondent to, uh, to, uh, to, to the Passover. So that when we look at the Lord's right. Supper itself, it's covenant ratification. It's a miniature anticipation of the final judgment, where Christ is present, and we ask ourselves, am I looking to Christ by faith? That is something that only uh, somebody who makes a profession of faith can do, and, I, and that's why uh, you know, I think Paul makes the statements that he does there in 1 Corinthians 11, that you have to rightly recognize the body and blood of Christ. And so that's uh, the important distinction, the difference between covenant inauguration and covenant uh, consummation, or you could say inauguration and ratification, perhaps. Uh, does that answer that question?
1: It it does. I think that's very helpful. Could you just very quickly tell our listeners about the idea of judgment involved in baptism? I, I think Meredith Klein talks about the blessing curse idea with the sacraments, but I think that's something that's maybe not understood very well in, in a lot of circles. Sure. Are you comfortable think, yeah. doing that?
3: Yeah, that's fine. And what was the first word that you mentioned? The something of baptism? I didn't quite catch that.
1: The judgment element. Oh, the judgment. The, the, okay. the judgment element, the promise of cursing for covenant breakers?
3: Yes. That, I think, is such an important dimension of the doctrine of baptism. And there are some in the Reformed tradition historically that draw attention to it. So, for example, um, Ursinus, in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, will talk about judgment uh, connected with baptism for those who don't profess a uh, faith in Christ Calvin on the other hand will simply talk of baptism as being to no effect uh, or to being you know of basically of no help to somebody uh, who uh, is not a believer now what's so important I think is that we recognize this uh, in many other contexts except for baptism I think especially uh, well, I think you could probably even said in the Presbyterian Church that uh, in some quarters, baptism is just seen exclusively in terms of blessing, um, right. and there's you know there are no consequences to it. It's just it's supposed to mean that uh, you know the, the the professing believer is saved, or for, in our case, the infant is baptized into the church. Wonderful, and it's something that uh, I think uh, P. T. Forsyth I think insightfully called it becomes the cult of the child, something that's a sacrament ceremony that people look mm-hmm. to, but I think the collective message of the scripture, I think, it can be summarized in this, and then I can fill in the details, is that there are no neutral encounters with the living God or with his revelation. Uh, we cannot enter into his presence and walk away unaffected. Um, it, there's always uh, a deciding point in that, uh, and I think Meredith Klein draws attention to this, but he's not the first to do so. But, uh, for example, with uh, Korah and a K- Korothite rebellion, in that they said, "No, we disagree. We, you know Moses is not our leader, he is not your chosen servant. And so God reveals his judgment. Yes, Moses is my servant. Moses and those who were faithful to him were blessed. Those who followed Korah were cursed. they were eaten up by the earth. Uh, we see this with the scriptures. The word of God is uh, you know sharper than any two-edged sword. We see this in the preaching of the gospel. Uh, in 2nd Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, we are the aroma of life for those leading to life, and we are the aroma of death to those leading to death. We see this in the crucifixion, the same crucifixion, same person, same event, same things going on. One thief is uh, saved, the other is damned or cursed. Um, you see this in the Lord's Supper. If um, you... Uh, uh, take the Lord's Supper, it can be a great blessing if you do so uh, properly. If you take it improperly without rightly recognizing the body and blood of Christ, it can lead to death. And so, I jokingly say this, uh, but it's true, I do what I call Sesame Street theology. Uh, which one of these things, is not like the other, can you tell me which one it is? Uh, and right. you usually see the three pictures of three firemen and then one police officer. Well, I want to say, if in all of these areas everything is double-edged, except for baptism which one doesn't fit uh and it's that we've had um uh, uh i guess a, a less than complete uh, understanding of what baptism is um i don't want to ramble on here but uh you know i just want to say that people then get scared and they say well wait a minute you mean i could be bringing a curse upon myself and my children if uh, if i baptize them or bap- and baptize myself and i say yes <laughs> And that's perhaps a little disconcerting. I said, but Paul says as much in Romans six. We're baptized into the death of Christ. Uh, Death is covenant curse, and apart from Mm -hmm. faith, we will bear that curse. Unless, unless we believe in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone in Him alone, then it is He who bears that curse for us. And then uh, water is that baptism. Water is the water of blessing. And not of curse. Um, two people were baptized. Two groups of people were baptized in the flood: Noah and the rest of the unbelieving world. Uh, two groups of people were baptized in the Red Sea: the Israelites and Pharaoh and his army. And we both see. Right. Uh, we all know what happened to those folks.
2: Doctor Fetho. And just Pesco. like
1: circumcision. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, just like circumcision has the, the idea of cutting away, God will either cut away the foreskin, the, the filth of the flesh, or he will cut you off from the people of God, and Christ is cut off at Calvary. So in the same Absolutely. way, then, baptism functions that's in a very similar way.
3: Absolutely, and, and just to, to alleviate the consciences and the, the concerns of some is that, in that sense, remember, this is no different than the preaching of the gospel. We don't preach the gospel in the hope of a curse. We always preach the gospel in the hope that people will be saved. But we either fall upon the rock or the rock falls upon us. And so with baptism, we administer it in the hope of the blessings of the new creation and the outpourings of the Spirit, Uh, but understanding that if we have not faith in Christ, well, then it will be the waters of drowning and judgment.
2: Uh, Dr. Fesco, just a real quick question here, because it it dovetails with what you've been saying, uh, is this idea of a creational um, baptism. And and you have this quote here, it's wonderfully stated, uh, uh, profound, you say, uh, at the end of the book, um, he also pronounces through word and water that his son has now baptized not only the church – but the entire creation in the Holy Spirit, a baptism of spirit and fire. Could you just uh, briefly elaborate for us what that means, the creational baptism?
3: Yes. Um, I think that the author of Hebrews catches this uh, well. Uh, It's just that he does so in in the context of rebuke, and so sometimes I think it doesn't fall uh, upon our ears as uh, easily as blessing language. But he says, Spirit is the power of the age to come, and it's through the Holy Spirit and Christ pouring out the Holy Spirit upon the church and the creation that he's bringing about uh, this uh, new creation, uh, not only in the hearts and lives of believers, but ultimately through the miraculous and uh, transformation of the creation through the work of the Spirit. And you see this uh, in Ezekiel's vision, for example, in Ezekiel 47 of his temple, where this there's this trickle of water coming out from beneath the temple threshold, and the farther the prophet walks away from the ta- the temple, he eventually has to swim in the water, so that it's literally this flood is is, is filling the earth, and you see this I think in Christ uh, when Christ discusses in the Gospel of John in John chapter seven where he says. You know, that uh, come to me, all you who are uh, thirsty, and I'll you know quench your thirst, and I'll give you manna from heaven. There in John 7, it's in the context of the water drawing ceremony during the uh, Feast of Booze. And so Christ was saying this. He says, and if you you know come to me, out of your heart will flow uh, streams of living water. And then there's a little editorial note there that John offers that says he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. And then you look in the book of, the Reve- of Revelation where it says that the, the water of the river life flowed out. So if you put the ideas together that we're the temple, that the, the streams of living water flow out of us, it's the Holy Spirit. Well, then you see that here are these new creation waters, if you will, imagery used to describe the work of the Spirit that uh, is associated with the water of baptism. But then you also see the flip side, too, that when Peter says that the first creation was deluged with water, he could have just said it was flooded, and we would all know, oh yeah, with water, but he specifies deluged with water to contrast it with the flood or the deluge of fire, i.e. the spirit. And um, you see this in John, I'm sorry in Matthew 3, where uh, John the Baptist says, "You will be baptized in spirit and fire." Uh, the uh, the pronoun there in Greek allows for no distinction between one, one baptism and another baptism. It's the same baptism of the Spirit. It's just that it's either a fire of cleansing and purification uh, or it's a fire of judgment. Uh, so yeah, that's I think those are important dimensions that um, we don't often see, I think, and so I wanted to try to bring that to the attention of the reader.
0: Mm, that's really helpful. And then, More and more of this biblical theology is available in the book, and I'd I'd encourage you to go look at it. But we wanted to uh, try to conclude our discussion today with a few questions in the systematic theological department. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's some very interesting uh, questions here, and one thing that you draw out in the book on the subject of baptism is that it is a means of grace. Um, What do you mean by means of grace, and, and how is that an important part of a Reformed doctrine of baptism?
3: Yeah, I think that that's uh, so important, and maybe <laughs> maybe I'm saying that's so important too many times, I guess I can tell you how much I, I <laughs> like this subject. Um, but um, I think so many folks in the broader Church balk at the idea of when we say baptism is a means of grace, and I think it perhaps for many out there, it immediately invokes uh, magic water and uh, the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church and all that kind of stuff. But I want to always ask the more the most fundamental question I think concerning this issue that again I don't find it addressed very specifically uh, on purpose. It's addressed in our confessions and uh, and catechisms, but I just don't see as many people drawing attention to it. But the first question is is what is grace? Um, that's a very important question for, um, you know, a Roman Catholic will say, well, it's a created substance that the, that the Holy Spirit creates and infuses into us, and it's given to us in baptism. Mm-hmm. That's a very different answer from what we would say as our confessions and catechisms, at least in the Presbyterian Church of Westminster. They say um, uh, it, uh, the sacraments chiefly represent Christ and his benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's, you know what is grace, or perhaps I could say it this way, who is grace? And it's Christ indwelling us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, not some sort of created thing that's infused to us. Mm. Secondly, if we say, well, how is it that I know more of Christ and uh, of the blessings that he brings through our union with Christ? Uh, I know more of these things through the scriptures. Okay, well then, what is the scriptures? It, well, it's God's revelation. Well, what else has God used to reveal himself? Well, he's used, uh, sacraments, or he uses water in this case, or, uh, bread and wine in the case of the Lord's Supper. Now, we always have to be careful, and I found it interesting that a number of theologians across, uh, you know, contemporary and, uh, historic will say this, is that you can have the word by itself without the sacraments, but that you cannot have the sacraments without the Word. In other words, you need that revelation from Scripture to explain what the sacraments are. But if this is all true, then this is how baptism is a means of grace, because it's a means of God revealing His Gospel to us uh, through the waters of baptism. It's just that when it's combined with the Word, uh, the Word is preached to our ears— and uh, the water preaches to our other senses, but perhaps maybe chiefly uh, to our eyes. So what the Word says to our ears, the water and the bread and the wine say to our eyes. Um, yeah, and so that's how it's a means of grace to us, mm. so that the Lord conveys that grace through His Word, uh, whether it's in Word or sacrament.
0: That's such an important point that was drawn out by the Reformers, that the Word always accompanies and interprets the sacrament. And another issue uh, related to the Reformers was their particular practice or their their view of Roman Catholic baptism. Could you uh, describe that and maybe flesh out some of the details?
3: Yeah, that's a a fascinating issue, I think, because our our common assumption might be, especially in the broader Church, well, surely we wouldn't accept a Roman Catholic baptism. But it's uh, surprising to find out that the Reformers did, and... I don't believe it was because they just didn't want to be uh, give something up to the Anabaptists. I think that that's somehow how it's presented, that they just were begrudging to the Anabaptists and didn't want to acknowledge that the Anabaptists were right about something, and so they did not want to be baptized again, or as uh, Baptists will contend, baptized for the first time correctly. And uh, the Reformers uh, could have very negative language for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, They could call the Roman Catholic Church uh, the great whore of Revelation, uh, and they could call the Pope the Antichrist. So they pulled no punches when it came to the Roman Catholic Church. But at the same time, they would also say, but nevertheless, the baptism that they administer is true, it's valid, uh, because uh, they People are not baptized into any one denomination, to use an anachronism. They're not baptized into the Pope's name. They are baptized into the triune name of God. And so this goes all the way back uh, to the Augustine and the Donatist controversy. Exactly. You know, who is it that uh, validates baptism? Is it man or God? Uh, If I'm baptized by a minister and then two weeks later he becomes a Mormon, does that invalidate the baptism? And, you know, the collective answer of the Reformers, and I think it's the right answer from Scripture, is no, it does not invalidate the baptism, because in the end it's God who baptizes us, uh, not man. And so what was, uh, I think, troubling about all of this is that in the 19th century uh, in the Presbyterian Church, uh, it was uh, Thornwell who led um, the General Assembly to reverse—and I'm horrible at math, (laughs) uh, guys—what was it, 350-some-odd years? Maybe it was 325, I forget. (laughs) We'll just say 300-plus years of Reformed history, and he turned it on a dime and had the General Assembly say that Roman Catholic baptisms were uh, not valid. And uh, Charles Hodge put up a good fight, but in the end, the vote was like 165 to eight. Ugh. And uh, yeah, it was a huge turnaround. And all of a sudden, 300 plus years of reformed uh, history is is uh, turned on its head. And Hodge but, said, well, we may have only been had eight people to vote with us on this issue, but we stand among the eight... Millions of others uh, who have said that uh, know that these baptisms are proper, and it's not because the Roman Catholic Church is proper, but it's because it's administered by a minister, it's administered by with water, and it's administered in the triune name of God. Now, these aren't the optimal, uh, you know, requirements of baptism, but they're the minimum requirements, and because of the minimum requirements, uh, Calvin, Luther, Turretin. Vitius, uh, Hodge, you name them, they all said that they were valid. And uh, so not that the question to be decided on uh, tradition alone, but I think that they were right in their exegesis of the scriptures on this point.
0: Mm, that's so helpful.
1: Now, to be, to, just to be fair to um, Thornwell, though, his argument was if we would not accept Roman Catholic uh, Eucharist, which the Reformers would not have accepted as legitimate, they would have seen that as idolatry and would have seen the Church ultimately as apostate um, and non-reformable, the argument did develop somewhat, just to be fair to Thornwell on that. And I know people are still all over the map on this, and it's a very difficult issue. But I mean, me, that's a powerful argument that if the one sacrament is seen as not legitimate because of what they say it is, why would we then say baptism that they say works ex opere operato is legitimate? But I, I do I know the argument's very Difficult um, on both sides. Yeah, they it's, are, it's the and hardest. I wrote
3: that chapter with great fear and trepidation. <laughs> and but I thought I even thought about cutting the chapter, and I thought you know, but I thought people know people are going to be asking the question anyway, so I might as well try to give a uh, reasoned response, understanding that not everybody may come to the same conclusions, but at least at a minimum, my hope would be is to accomplish a greater degree of ecumenical co- cooperation among. Uh, evangelicals, if I can use that word, mm-hmm. uh, Baptists sure, and Presbyterians, sure. that they would say, okay, wait a minute, maybe we have uh, drawn the lines too hard uh, on yeah. uh, on Protestant baptisms, and we're looking at this far too narrowly. And while I still may be suspicious of a Roman Catholic baptism, I should be willing to accept a Presbyterian baptism. So,
1: Yeah, yeah that's very insightful. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we could talk to you for a long time. We don't want to exhaust the book because we want people to buy it and uh, to read it. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Fesco.
3: Hey, thanks, fellas, for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. And yeah. I always hope to look forward to future times where we can
0: chat. Absolutely. And if you keep writing excellent books, we'll always have <laughs> times to chat. <laughs> I will encourage you to check this book out, Word, Water, and Spirit, A Reformed Perspective on Baptism. By, uh, it is published by Reformation Heritage Books, and it is available now. Uh, it's an excellent book, and uh, as you as you can tell, uh, there's plenty to, to read and to learn and uh, to discuss with others. You can, of course, visit us online at reformedforum.org, and there you'll find information about all of our programs as well as how to subscribe and uh, as well as a calendar for all of our recordings and events so you can see when and uh, if we are broadcasting live. You can also visit Nick online at feedingonchrist.com, one of the Reformed Forum websites, and there's a wealth of information there and a constant stream of excellent posts on different topics in Reformed theology. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.